I think that one of the best things about Christmas is a family reunion. This is the time of the year when children return to their parents' homes. And parents, of course, nothing makes them happier to welcome their children back home. And I know, as in all things, sometimes our family get-togethers can overshadow the meaning of Christmas. That is true. Nevertheless, I think it's beautiful, and I think it's, I think it's wonderful that as we think about Jesus' birth, we also think about our home, homecoming. Because it seems to me that our Christmas celebration becomes richer for remembering that Christmas is about homecoming. Namely, as we celebrate Christmas, we remember that we are aliens and strangers longing for a home. And that is what we see in this passage because this passage tells us that life in Christ is life in wilderness. Life in Christ is life in the wilderness. Now, in, uh, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, we have, if I can give you a quick summary, this message. The Word, Jesus, He was there in the beginning when God created the universe. Actually, John says more than that, doesn't he? Jesus was, wasn't just there with God when God created the world. Jesus was God who made light shine in darkness. And the significance of that is that Jesus who created the world out of nothing, Jesus who brought order into chaos, Jesus who filled the emptiness with abundance and with life, this Jesus, he is uniquely fit and able to bring beauty and abundance where there is only emptiness. This Jesus, he is uniquely able to bring order into the chaos of sin in our lives. And this happens through two intimately related events. First, we read in John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have these two things that are inseparably and intimately related, our becoming the children of God and the Word of God becoming flesh. And what John is telling us is that the goal, the goal of Jesus' incarnation, the goal of Jesus becoming flesh, the goal of Jesus becoming a human being is to give us new birth as God's children. That is to say, to think about Jesus' incarnate life requires us to think about our new life 
in Christ. Because that is why Jesus came. Jesus became man so that you and I might have new life. And our new life in Christ is a wilderness life. Now, to say that our new life in Christ is a wilderness life, that is, of course, to use a metaphor. Uh, But I think this is a metaphor that we all understand, we all feel deep in our hearts, don't we? Because life doesn't always feel like we are placed in a fertile, peaceful garden where we put deep roots put down deep roots and thrive and grow. Life doesn't always feel like that, does it? Life rather often feels like traveling on sun-beaten and dry paths, longing for a faraway home. And we are sometimes unsure whether we are taking the right path. Life sometimes fills us with sorrow, uncertainty, and doubt. We feel lost. We feel lonely. We feel weary and in danger. You see how, see how John takes us back to Israel's exodus from Egypt and wilderness wandering to describe the new life in Christ. John 1.14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in Greek is the word that is used in the Old Testament for God pitching his tent to dwell with his people. And it takes us right back to the time of the Exodus and the wilderness wandering. God liberated Israel from bondage in Egypt. He led them through the 40-year wilderness wandering to the promised land. And during their wilderness wandering, God pitched his tabernacle, the meeting place, the tent, in order to be with his people. That's the word that was used in the Old Testament. And throughout the 40-year wilderness wandering, God was present with Israel. God was leading them. He provided for them. He protected them. And he forgave them. And what John is telling us when he tells us the word became flesh and dwelt, when the word became flesh and pitched his tent, what John is telling us is that Israel's wilderness pilgrimage is the model for life in Christ. Jesus rescues us from sin's bondage. Jesus leads us through life's wilderness And as he leads us through the wilderness of life, he provides for us. He protects us. He forgives us. And he is with us. And that's the first thing we need to understand as the normative pattern of the Christian life. Christian life, unfortunately, is not being carried up to heaven on a bed of roses with this 
scent of warm spring air surrounding us. Christian life is meant to be a wilderness journey. And Jesus has pitched his tent. He is present with us, leading us, guiding us. But there is also glory in the wilderness. We experience God's glory in different ways. If you think again back to the time of Exodus, Egypt experienced God's glory in judgment. That's how they experienced God's glory. Israel, on the other hand, Israel experienced God's glory through the tabernacle and through the mercy seat. Now, you all remember what the tabernacle was. It was a tent of meeting, and within the tent were housed some very important uh, implements, utensils, and instruments of worship and meeting with God. In the Holy of Holies, the most inner sanctum of the tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a, a, simply put, a golden box. And the significance of the golden box was two. One, within that Ark were kept the two tablets of the law, the words of the covenant. The covenant that Israel broke when they worshiped the golden calf, but God, in his grace and mercy, did not reject them, but he once again entered into covenant with them. And so the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant kept the words of the covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant, being a box, had a lid. And the lid had upon it the figurines or the shape of a throne and two angels. And it was called the mercy seat. And the high priest would enter and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seed. And it made rather a clear point. God, who sat upon the throne, would look down and see that the words of the law, words of the covenant, were covered by his mercy seed and by the sprinkled blood. So the demands of the law, the strict demands, the conditions, the consequences of the law were covered by mercy and by blood. And that's why the tent of the meeting, the tabernacle, became for God's people where God met with his people with mercy. You see, the wilderness, as we read in the Bible, was no doubt a very difficult place for Israel. But it was also where Israel experienced God's glorious mercy. And what John is telling us when he says, the word became flesh and pitched his tent, John is telling us now Jesus is our new tabernacle. Jesus is now where we meet God. Jesus is where we come and draw near God and see and find that the demands of the law have been covered by mercy and with blood, that it is in Jesus God meets us, not with wrath and not with judgment, but God meets us with his glorious mercy. 
And that brings us to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now this phrase, grace upon grace, has caused some debate uh, because it uses a preposition anti. Uh, the Greek is literally grace anti-grace. And the, the preposition anti means what we think it means. It means against. It means instead of. So people have wondered, what in the world does it mean to receive grace against grace? And so this has caused no small amount of debate. Uh, but, you know, I'm always convinced when a, when a little part of Scripture is confusing us, we actually need to look around. Because usually if we find a part of a Scripture that is difficult and challenging, the answer is usually right there, right near it. And it seems to me the answer to the key to understanding the meaning grace upon grace or grace against grace is in the first part of the phrase where it says, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For from his fullness we have received. So the question is, what is the fullness of Christ? What so fills Jesus that from his fullness we receive grace upon grace or grace against grace. In order to understand what so completely fills Jesus, we need to turn, for example, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. There the Lord says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. So in Isaiah 42, we see what fills the servant of the Lord, the Father's delight and the spirit of God. That's what fills Jesus to the brim, to the overflowing, the delight of the Father and the spirit of the Father. And then John 3, 34, we read, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So what fills Jesus to the brim? The Word of God. And what fills Jesus to the brim? The Spirit of God. That's what fills Jesus, the Father's delight, the Spirit of God, the Word of of God. And so when we notice what Scripture says about Jesus, we realize exactly what John is saying when he says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What John is saying is that the Father, he has blessed his Son with every blessing. Jesus was not endued with trickles of favor, but he was blessed with mighty torrents of gifts and anointing, filled to the brim, overflowing with the Father's love, with the Father's delight, with the Word of God, with Spirit's power and presence. 
That's the fullness of Jesus. And Jesus, from that fullness, gives us grace upon grace. Meaning, from that fullness, he gives us measure for measure. Everything Jesus receives from the Father and the Spirit, he gives us gift for gift, grace for grace, measure for measure. That's what John means when he says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Everything that the Father has given his Son, his delight, his approval, the fullness of the Spirit's presence and anointing. Jesus receives them, turns around, and gives them to us. Gift for gift, grace for grace, measure for measure. And what that means is that grace upon grace means that we are loved by the Father. We are loved by the Son and we are loved by the Spirit in ways that even the best of the Old Testament people could not have imagined. You know, John is not so much setting Moses against Jesus in verse 17. It says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Some people take this as a a contrasting statement, but you quickly realize this, this is not a contrast. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You realize that Moses had grace. After all, the mercy seed, the sacrifices, they were given to us through Moses. And what is the mercy seat except where God gives grace to his people? And what are the sacrifices except God accepts the blood of an innocent victim in order to forgive the one who is guilty and condemned? There is grace in the Old Testament. There is grace in Moses. In fact, I would say the Old Testament is brimming over with grace. And there is no legalism in the Old Testament. Legalism is what people bring to the Old Testament. But if we understand the Old Testament correctly, we realize the Old Testament is full of grace. Moses is full of grace. So it can't be that John is making a simple contrast. The law came through Moses as if to say there was no grace in Moses. And of course, John can't be saying that there was no truth in Moses when he says the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I mean, what is the law? The law is many things, but at the very least, it is truth. You see? So Moses was full of grace. It was full of truth. So what John says here is not that Moses was all works, all legalism, all lie, where only Jesus is grace and truth. What John is saying is that we have the fullness and the reality for which the tabernacle wilderness was only the promise and a foretaste. That's what John means here. 
The tabernacle was the meeting place of the holy God with sinners, where God met with them with mercy and grace. And he was pointing them all to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who would become flesh. Think about this. God has a birthday. And the mother was created by her own baby. God became flesh so that he may become for us the place where we meet with God and find grace and mercy. The best of the Old Testament saints only had mere foretaste, mere glimpse of these beautiful realities. But in Jesus, we have the fullness and the reality of it, mercy that never ends. Unhindered fellowship. That's what we have. Provision. Protection. All the way through our wilderness journey until we reach the promised land. Israel faced many trials in the wilderness. But all of their trials had a way out. You see, in every one of their trials, they needed to remember that there was more grace in God than there was trouble in their trials. And that's what, that is what Jesus teaches us in our wilderness, that there is more grace in Jesus than there is trouble in our trials, that there is more compassion in Jesus than there is guilt in our heart. That is why Jesus was born. That is why Jesus is our Savior. Yes, our wilderness journey is often very hard. But remember this too. Just as God met with Israel in the wilderness, showing them grace and mercy, our wilderness is also the place where Jesus meets us to show us grace and mercy. And that brings us to the third and the last point, Jesus in the wilderness. Now, wilderness life is very discouraging if we forget where the wilderness leads to. The wilderness leads to the promised land. And our present salvation experience is only, but it is surely, a down payment of our complete salvation. Now, of course, a promise is only as good as the promise maker, isn't it? Politicians' promises, what are they worth exactly? But the promise belongs to God. And the down payment was paid with the blood of his son. And so we remember and we can trust and we can rest knowing that our wilderness life, as difficult as it is, as heartbreaking as it can be, as weary as we are, as discouraged as we can be, 
our wilderness life is how God brings us into full possession of the promised rest and glory. Or can I put it to you this way? Our wilderness days is the engagement leading up to the wedding. And if we remember that, then that is the antidote and that is the answer, that is the medicine against the discouragement and the hardships of our wilderness experience, that it is actually leading us somewhere, that God is present with us, leading us through our our difficult experiences to the promised land. Now, when we travel... um, You know, I'm about to say something that dates me <laughs> because, you know, this is the first generation in human history where no one is ever lost anymore. We carry in our phones GPS, you know, and it's amazing how accurate these things are. But, you know, before the dawn of technology, you know, when we traveled, we, we carried maps with us, didn't we? I remember when I first learned to drive, I always had with me Thomas Guide, for those of you that are too young. It's, it's a book of local maps. Because, you know, if you travel, the most important thing to have is a set of good maps. And if you're traveling in a strange place, you need a reliable travel guide. And traveling without them can be very dangerous. And in our wilderness travel, we follow Jesus. Because you see Jesus from his birth in a manger to his escape in Egypt, to his wandering ministry, Jesus has experienced for us what it's like to wander in this world, what it's like to be strangers and aliens. He knows and he will lead with compassion. And there is no better guide than Jesus. Look what John says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Did you hear that? No one has ever seen God. And because no one has ever seen God, there's no way that you can know God except the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus. The only God, Jesus, he has made him known. You know, that's a striking confession of Jesus' divinity. But that striking theological statement is serving a purpose. What is the significance? What is the purpose? It is telling us that Jesus is not just a reliable and faithful guide through our wilderness. It is telling us that Jesus is actually the maker of the wilderness. And because of that, no one knows life's wilderness better 
and no one can lead us more safely and no one can show God's glory better than Jesus because he is God. And it is for that very reason that Jesus was born, that he pitched his tent, that he became Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was born to give you a new birth. And he calls you into the wilderness and he leads you to the promised land. So let me ask you this morning, are you weary of life? Do you look around you and do you feel like you don't belong here? You feel homesick. Your heart is heavy. You are in the wilderness. But Jesus has brought you there. And Jesus knows the heaviness of your heart. Jesus knows your burdens. Jesus knows your longings. And he promises you that he is with you that he will meet with you with compassion, with grace and mercy. And he promises you that he, he will be your home today and always. God has a birthday. Jesus, Emmanuel, amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. And Lord Jesus, thank you for being born to lead us through the wilderness, to bring us to our home. And we pray, O God, that as we celebrate your birth, may we remember that you have created us for our true home. And even as we get together and enjoy our loved ones. Help us to look forward to being with you. Help us to look forward to our true home where all our longing desires will be met. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.